0: Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Eric Fear, the president of C. Silvercrest Metals, trading in the U.S. as SVCMF and on the TSX Venture Exchange's SIL.B. Silvercrest Metals is a Vancouver-based precious metals exploration company that is focused on new discoveries, value-added acquisitions, and targeting production in Mexico's historic precious metals districts. Their Las Chispas mine in Sonora State, Mexico, promises to be a potentially highly prolific play. Eric, welcome back to the program.
1: Ellis, thanks. It's always great to be back on with you.
0: Now let's talk in broad strokes about the successes Silvercrest has had in 2017. And then let's take a look at 2018 and see what we can expect going forward.
1: Yeah, our success in 2017 has been basically rolled out of 2016 when we had the start of a lot of high-grade discoveries. And we've just come into 2017, found more high-grade discoveries, expanded on those. I mean, the wealth of information and the value that we've created in 2017 is far greater than the initial discoveries in 2016. This is typical you got a district, you're making all these sexy looking discoveries, and now it's boots on the ground, it's all the hard work to make this come to fruition, and all the focus for everybody is on a maiden resource that's coming up no later than the end of February. I wanted to get it out before the big conference that's coming up in Toronto so we can discuss it there, and that's all boots on the ground, all focus on continued success is just expanding. What what we think is high-grade footprint at Los Chispas until we got this resource out and you know what we're going to just keep drilling and I told the market nine months ago we're just going to keep putting out high-grade intercepts until you got a critical mass and it just gets more recognition in the market.
0: Are we going to see Silvercrest Metals as a producer or are you gearing up to be taken out?
1: The crosshairs are to go back into production. So everybody's focus needs to be on that and on that track and stay the course. There's always an opportunity, and it's what's best for the shareholders. If you get a ridiculous offer that you go ahead with that, that's an avenue that you can go later in the future. But I don't want to get distracted on that. This is a company that could be another producer in the near future, remind everybody, we've already done it. We've already done a production. We've already done successful production right next door. And we had a great transaction that we did with First Majestic Silver in 2015. Shareholders, if you would have believed in that story, and that was a great transaction because within nine months of that transaction, people's value and their shareholdings went up six times. So this is great value to our shareholders. And those are the kind of transactions that you're willing to do that basically persuade you not to go into production. Or in my case, and what I've seen in my career, which is now 30 plus years, is that you have to go into production before you really get recognized for the value that's established. And so that's what we're going to have to do, Ellis. We're going to just have to get back into production, make another cash cow, which the mine that we did the transaction with is now the flagship and the cash cow for First Majestic Silver.
0: Since you brought it up, Eric, I was recently in San Francisco at the Silver and Gold Summit, and I heard Keith Newmeyer, the president of First Majestic Silver, say exactly that. He listed four or five of their projects, and he said that the Santa Elena mine acquired from Silvercrest was the most prolific cash cow. And if we have something potentially bigger here with Las Chispas, then wow. You've
1: got to look at Las Chispas as being very similar to the Santa Elena mine that is now being operated by First Majestic Silver, and that was the one that we had sold to them. So the similarities are that it's in the same region. It has what we call closeology as far as the geology goes and the mineralization. The biggest difference between the two is the grades at Los Chispas are double, the grades that you see at Santa Elena, okay? So if you're a cash cow that has publish grades for production from Santa Elena, and you find something right next to it that's double the grade, then you've got to think the value.
0: You've got to have people courting you right now.
1: Well, you know, it's common sense. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I mean, there's a lot of interest and eyes on the story. You know, this is a new district, new discovery over the last year and a half on the market. Never been drilled before until we've drilled it. We have 19 epithermal veins that have widths of a half a meter to eight meters wide. We're focusing on the wider ones because that's low-hanging fruit for us. Of the 19 veins, we have partially drilled nine of those. Every vein that we've drilled, we've hit high grade. When I say high grade, I'm talking over a half a kilo per ton, silver equivalent. And I use 75 to 1 gold to silver. It's just gold and silver. And the value break in that is about half gold, half silver. You've really got a lot of potential in front of you. The resource that we're coming out is four of those 19 veins and doesn't include, you know, five of the veins we already know have high grades on. We just have to do our detective work to start showing volumetrics around those other veins in order to really start announcing more discovery.
0: So the exploration aspect of your business is going to go on for quite some time, isn't it?
1: We'll probably keep drills with success. We'll keep the drills running for the next two years and we'll be continually having out news flow, hopefully on more discoveries and building a larger resource around that.
0: Now, the name of your company isn't Goldcrest, it's Silvercrest. And when you're talking about silver equivalent, you're really adding in gold. And some of the gold grades here are stronger than many of the gold companies in the junior space. You have one indication of 92.6 grams per ton, and then we go down to a paltry 9 grams per ton. That is very, very significant. And yet we call it silver equivalent.
1: Again, we are a silver company. Half of our value, though, is carried in gold. I love to work on deposits that have a gold credit like that. It's the same thing at Santa Elena when we were working on that. I mean, if you were just looking at Santa Elena, as Silvercrest Mines, which is our predecessor, and and I was co-founder of that. If you're just looking at that, if you were just chasing silver, that mine wouldn't be there today. It definitely needed to have that 50% value in gold to make
0: it. I've been speaking with Eric Fear, the president of Silvercrest Metals, trading in the U.S. as SVCMF, and on the TSX Venture Exchange as SIL.B. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com, or listen to the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Tony Barresi, VP of Exploration for Triumph Gold Corp., trading as TIG on the TSX Venture Exchange and TIGCF in the U.S. Triumph Gold Corp. is a growth-oriented Canadian-based precious metals exploration and development company focused on creating value through the advancement of the district-scale Freegold Mountain Project in the Yukon. Tony, thanks for joining me today on the program.
2: Thank you very much.
0: If you don't mind, give us an overview of Triumph Gold Corp.
2: Triumph Gold is a mineral exploration company. Our flagship property is the Freegold Mountain Project in the Yukon. It's a district-scale property that was put together by a third-generation Yukon prospector uh, back around... 2006, and he put together a amazing package of, of ground at the time, 200 square kilometers, 20 kilometers from end to end, and it's along the uh, Big Creek Fault, which is a controlling structure for a whole bunch of the deposits in the area, like coffee, casino, and CarMax Copper, and we have the longest road-accessible stretch of that fault. The company was founded by Bill Harris, third-generation prospector, and between 2006 and 2012 a whole bunch of exploration was done on this this consolidated property and they defined 3 43101 compliant resources and not much work was done after 2012 until this year and this year we took a new approach to exploration on the property and we did 13,000 meters of drilling and proved a brand new exploration concept on the property.
0: Can we talk about that process?
2: Absolutely. So, two of the resources on the property are called Nucleus and Revenue. We're interpreting those two resources to be part of the same evolving magmatic hydrothermal system. They're about three kilometers apart. Nucleus is sort of lower temperature, gold-rich, epithermal-style deposit, whereas Revenue is a diatreme-related deposit. And the idea that we brought to exploration in the area around these deposits was that they are both part of the same evolving magmatic hydrothermal system. They're encompassed by a five kilometer soil anomaly that's just the size of what you would expect a porphyry system to be if it hosted a diatrium as well as epithermal system. So we stepped out way out from the resources and started drilling looking for an underlying cause for porphyry mineralization. And We did 13,000 meters of drilling in the revenue and nucleus areas, and we demonstrated porphyry mineralization over a three-kilometer strike length. Within that strike length, we identified almost half a kilometer of gold-rich, economic-style porphyry mineralization. We also, in another location, intersected the highest-grade gold that was ever intersected in the revenue area. And in one of our most farthest step outs, we did a 600 meter deep sort of wildcat hole into a chargeability high. And from top to bottom, we encountered a fossilized, extremely vigorous hydrothermal system. It's just loaded with stockwork veining sulfides, high and low temperature alteration. And so that's part of the three kilometer strike length of porphyry mineralization that we think that we've defined around these already existing deposits.
0: In one of your recent press releases, the company indicated that you found grades between 45 and 81 grams per ton gold. Is that what you were referring to earlier? Can we expect to see that in some kind of consistency?
2: So that was a really interesting intersection. That was a drill hole that was drilled in an area that has seen very little historical drilling. And in fact, the last diamond drilling that was done anywhere near that area was back in the early 80s. We decided to drill there because... Almost all of the historical work, which was a little bit of drilling and a fair bit of trenching, all hit double-digit numbers for gold. We drilled a hole there, and we hit seven meters of about 15 grams per tonne gold, including an assay, up to 83 grams gold. What's really compelling about that is that this is on a broad ridge that's between two creeks. And just below where we drilled at the confluence of those two creeks is one of the Yukon's or at least the Dawson Range's most renowned and famous rich placer deposits. It's called Revenue Creek. And everyone that works in the area knows Revenue Creek because it had an incredible placer deposit, a very, very rich channel. And the load source of that gold had never been discovered before. So we with our very first hole into that area that's the catchment for that creek intersected the highest grade gold that had ever been intersected in this area. And the gold has a mineralogical association with bismuthinite. And the guys at University of British Columbia studied the placer gold in that creek, and it also has a bismuthinite mineralogical association. So we think we're really on to something here. And if you look at this broad ridge, it has almost no drilling, but it has a really strong gold and bismuth and soil anomaly. So it's wide open for further exploration, and we, we really do think that we're on to something here. We're going to be able to tag into the load source for that very rich plaster deposit.
0: What do you think we'll be seeing during the next six months?
2: We're not going to be doing any exploration over the course of the winter, but we're going to get started really early in the spring because some of the areas we want to get into are sort of swampy and dragging a drill in over a frozen ground is really the ideal way to get in there rather than needing to use a helicopter. So you you can expect to see that we'll be heading back onto the property and doing more drilling probably in late April and we'll be continuing on through the full course of the summer. We have about $3 million that's earmarked for exploration in the bank right now, so we'll be doing a program at least the size of the same scale as what we've done in 2017.
0: Well, Tony, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks so much for joining me on the program.
2: Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you.
0: I've been speaking with Dr. Tony Baresi, the VP of Exploration for Triumph Gold Corp, trading as TIG on the TSX Venture Exchange and TIGCF in the U.S. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. After the full story on this company, go to TriumphGoldCorp.com. I'm Ellis Martin, once again reporting from Mines and Money London, where I had the opportunity to chat with Sir Richard Sheriff, founding partner of Strategia Worldwide, protecting value with a focus on the mining and resource space. Sir Richard has over 37 years' experience as an international leader and commander riding to the highest rank in the British Army and NATO. He has extensive experience in building unity of effort with different nations, governments, the humanitarian community, and a wide variety of other stakeholders in order to resolve complex problems. These are all valued commodities that can be brought into action when evaluating a mining project, both for companies and investors. Sir Richard, welcome to the program. Nice to have you here.
3: Pleasure to be here, Alice. Give us a background, an overall background of your company if you don't mind. We're in the business of protecting value by putting together strategies to manage risk. It's about not looking at risk in silos. It's about understanding the relationships between risks, understanding where a company is looking to get to, working back, looking at the effect required, and then designing ways to achieve that effect. But above all, as I say, it's about understanding risk comprehensively and looking at that from a strategic perspective.
0: Speaking of a strategic perspective, you have a rich military background with NATO, and how would that apply to the business that you're in? In fact, as far as I'm concerned, it would apply to any particular business with regard to discipline and structure.
3: Well, if you look at the challenges faced by military commanders and planners, particularly in the last two decades or so, in designing campaigns, designing strategies, the parallels with the mining world are very stark and very clear. You have to think comprehensively, you have to think strategically, you have to bring in multiple stakeholders to achieve a desired effect. And you have to think campaign. And actually a mine, a 30-year life of mine is a campaign. You've got to think about social risk, political risk, communities, you've got to establish your political license to operate, and you have to communicate. Well, this is what military commanders have been doing in places like the Balkans, Iraq, and elsewhere. And actually, so what we're doing is bringing in that thinking allied with a broad range of expertise from our associate base, whether developmental, societal, diplomatic, political, strategic communications expertise, and of course mining expertise in order to help companies protect their value by designing the necessary strategies. So you will do your job. You will work anywhere on the planet. We'll work anywhere. Yeah, we'll work anywhere. I mean, to us, the flip side of risk is opportunity. We're in the business of helping companies manage their risks to generate opportunities, to generate prosperity, not only for themselves, but also, of course, for the communities they're operating in. And step number one, basically, is the community. Step number one is understand. Understand the challenges. Understand the the landscape. And that requires not only looking at communities, it means at the ethical, the religious, makeup of communities, the societal trends. It means understanding the politics, the technology, the media. It covers a wide range of areas. You start with understanding from which you begin to derive the factors you need to focus on in order to design a strategy. And that could be security, it could be social performance, it could be strategic communications. It'll cover a wide range of areas. Once you've got that understanding, you can begin then to go into the strategic design phase from which a strategy will emerge. And by strategic design, I would imagine that would also include the engineering issues. Absolutely. You've got to bring in that. And you have to understand the implications of the technical. And too often, I would suggest, mining companies may well focus on the technical and the geological without thinking through the wider implications. And again, this comes back to why risk needs to be looked at in an interrelated way.
0: How did you personally get into this business?
3: I looked at what was going on in the oil and gas world, actually, shortly after the Macondo disaster in Gulf of Mexico. And it struck me then that actually the lessons that the military had learned the hard way, because it didn't get it right by any means, in places like the Balkans and Iraq, were relevant in the extractive sector as well. Because what I saw was a tendency to look at risks in silos. Security, let's bring in a security company. Social performance, let's bring in a social performance consultancy. Actually, what we can do is bring that all together in a comprehensive way.
0: You mentioned a silo, and excuse me, when I think of a silo, I think of a farm silo and grain inside. Explain what that is.
3: Well, silos is about looking in a sort of focused, canalized way. So you look at security without thinking about the fact that security is more than about guns and guards and gates. It's about the way you interact with the society you're operating in, because that, a good example, is security is derived from the people amongst whom you're living. You look at environmental risk without thinking of the wider implications. So it's about thinking, avoiding that sort of canalized, as I say, silo thinking. Which originally are probably military issues to begin with. I don't mean now, but I mean in the past there's many parallels what the military have learned. It's about understanding what is going on in the mind of the people you're operating on. And I would suggest that the same applies in business. It absolutely applies in mining, that you need to subject everything you're doing to one key criterion. What impact is what we're about to do going to have on the minds of the people we're operating amongst? If you alienate the people you're operating amongst, you're going to run into trouble. You're going to gift the advantage to those who will be opposing your project, your campaign. And as we saw here in Minds and Money with the demonstrators outside yesterday, there are plenty of people who are in the business of stopping mining projects we're in the business of taking mining forward from being purely extractive to being much more of a developmental partnership which is where the the, the industry's got to go in future i was recently
0: experiencing the same sort of protest atmosphere for a few days down in melbourne australia along again with this conference and when i view these individuals, I, I saw a lack of understanding. Do you spend any time dealing with that faction, educating it, or you're concerned just making sure that security protects all of your clients' assets?
3: Oh, no, no. You've got to think more broadly than just purely security. And absolutely, it's incumbent. this is something the military's had to learn the hard way, which is you have to be able to engage with the broadest group of stakeholders. And there will be many stakeholders for whom you're, it's going to be difficult. But that places a remit on, I would suggest, on mining companies to develop the means and ways to integrate their planning where possible with other stakeholders, so regional governments, communities, but also to be able to reach out to NGOs to establish at least a degree of unity of understanding. And that's partly, of course, that's about education. But the way to do that is, as I say, to demonstrate that it's about shared prosperity, a win for all. At the end of the day, if you can generate prosperity for the communities, the countries you're operating in, as well as for the companies and the shareholder, of course, then mining companies will establish that wider level of consent which is going to be needed. So
0: broad prosperity with regard to all of these jurisdictions and the people that live and work there is sort of like music. It makes everybody happy and it mitigates a lot of uncertainty and unhappiness. Absolutely. You have a broad range of clients and sponsors, from investors to mining companies. Let's talk more about that.
3: Yeah, we're well-placed to help companies direct, and it just happens that mining has been an area where we've done a lot of work, but it could as easily be agribusiness, it could be infrastructure projects in complex or difficult parts of the world. We've helped out companies with what you might call getting a project back on track after it's run into some political and social opposition. But equally, I think this is really relevant We're also very much in the business of helping a company design a strategy from the start of a project. To avoid downstream problems. We're also in the business being able to act as independent assurance for investors that a project they are considering investing in, that a company that they're thinking about investing in, has got a properly thought through strategy for managing risks. There will always be risks but as I said earlier risk is the flip side of opportunity and if you can demonstrate that you've got a coherent credible campaign plan to manage that risk then you have a greater chance of attracting an investor. Equally I think we're also potentially in the business of getting in right at the start pre-project startup together with explorers and developers of projects because it's one thing to be able to demonstrate the feasibility of a project in terms of the all the amount of yield and the amount that can be extracted but increasingly those companies who might want to buy such projects will want to know as well that the social terrain the above ground risk has been thought about and there are ways of mitigating it too.
0: Do you advise companies to proceed or investors to not get involved or are you always of the mindset that let's figure out a way to make this happen?
3: We are always cup half full. But we are realistic, and if we felt that the risks of getting engaged for, say, an investor because of, I don't know, say, corruption or an issue like that were such, we would have no problem in no hesitation in saying our recommendation is do not proceed. So I think our professional integrity depends upon that.
0: What about countries like Venezuela or Afghanistan, mineral-rich, energy-rich, problems with the government. Do you venture into those realms? Well,
3: I've uh, personally spent a bit of time in Afghanistan in the past, not been to Venezuela. But, you know, the world is increasingly globalized and opportunities need to be looked for everywhere. And I would go back to your previous question about saying we would go anywhere, look at any country, but be totally realistic about the challenges and the risks involved. And if we felt there was a way of achieving operational success in a difficult country through the effective management of risks, through a campaign plan which we could provide or work alongside a company to to deliver, then we'd say, let's go for it. But if we felt the obstacles were such that it would not be worth pursuing, we would say so. You've been at this event for a couple of days here in London. What kind of questions have you been asked and how fruitful has it been for you? I think what comes out again and again, and this is the third Minds & Money that I've been to, I think that there is a growing recognition across the mining industry. in fact, you might call it a, you know the spirit of the Times, a sort of zeitgeist that says that it 's about ESG environmental social governance it 's about global reporting index, and these are increasing considerations the social developmental aspects of mining, I think, are is a growing theme. And one certainly sensed that from the panel discussion we had earlier today. And I think that absolutely plays into that approach to managing risk, which looks at risk comprehensively. Let's talk about your team. Yeah, we've got a pretty varied team. A look at the website shows that the associate base we've got is very broad, very varied. And these are all people who have done things the hard way. You know, they've rolled up their sleeves, they've got experience and the medals and scars to prove it, whether in doing social development in country like the Niger Delta or Libya or Algeria for for extractives, whether in brokering peace agreements in Northern Ireland, whether campaigning in places like Iraq, Afghanistan, a small proportion of military, whether in strategic communications helping major corporates turn around the message after reputation loss in the consumer business or in in the mining industry. We've got significant expertise and experience from people who've spent their lives in the mining world. So what we're in the business of being able to do is pull together teams of expertise covering a wide range to put together the necessary work to support companies and protect value. If you have a message for our audience, what would that be at this point? Well, I would say that Increasingly companies need to think about the way they approach risk. They increasingly need to understand that there's a wide range of risks that need to be looked at and that, that third party independent assurance is a way of getting around company groupthink. And very often, however good and effective a company's risk management is, that it's it is very difficult sometimes to see the wood for the trees. So a third party assessment from people like us I think can help the cause in a great way. Sir Richard Sheriff, thank you so much for joining me today on the program here at Minds and Money in London. Thank you very much for having me.
0: I've been speaking with Sir Richard Schur, a founding partner of Strategia Worldwide at Minds and Money London. Find more on Strategia on their website, strategiaworldwide.com. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. they paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com.